Today I want to emphasize one aspect of the Passover that we need to practice all through the year. And uh, I want to start out actually by reading Dr. Winnell's uh, letter. He wrote something on this, and he and I were talking, and it occurred to me to follow through and actually get more into this subject. In the comment section of the uh, uh, World Ahead, you might read it on your own, but you might not read it. And so I'll read it to you, and I hope you'll read it again when you get home. True Servant Leadership. In today's competitive dog-eat-dog world, the emphasis is often on doing whatever needs to be done uh, to be uh, on top, to be in charge, to be number one, as the old saying goes, nice guys finish last. Unfortunately, this status-oriented attitude seeps over into the church, and some become overly focused on gaining or holding on to position, and they lose sight of the reason that position exists in the church. And brethren, I'll comment occasionally, but that is certainly true. So many of our people have had that as a very profound problem. They want a title, they want position, and uh, they angle for that. We need to remember that positions in the church are not about power, status, or privilege. Jesus told his disciples that he looks for individuals who were humble, meek, teachable, and compassionate, converted, and capable. And he quotes some scriptures here, or refers to them. Jesus condemned the worldly attitude of seeking a position, worrying about status and exerting authority. And he went on to explain that the true Christian leadership involves developing an attitude of unselfish, that's unselfish service to others, servant leadership. In the church or on our jobs, we can face trials and tests when our position or responsibilities change. That's human to be upset. I've had my position changed many, many times in the Worldwide Church of God. A lot of you know that. And was sent here and there, put up, put down. The elevator goes both ways, and it certainly did. It's a trial. But nevertheless, each one has to focus on the big picture, as I've said. And uh, at least I tried to do that, not perfectly. But that's something very important to learn. However, our challenge is to handle these changes as a Christian. The Apostle Paul writes that he learned how to handle blessings and opportunities as well as challenges. Students of leadership have observed that true servant leaders don't need a position or status to serve. Their ability to lead and serve stems, notice, from their uh, qualities of character, seeing a need and trying to fill it, being caring and concerned for others, being a person of integrity, being humble, being unselfish, the very qualities Jesus mentions in Matthew 5, verses 3 to 10. Those are the Beatitudes, you know, and you might reread those. As we approach the Passover, we need to examine ourselves and our attitudes about service. Are we focused on position, power, or prestige, or are we striving to become truly Christian servant leaders? So that's uh, the uh, comment from Dr. Winnell, and I thought that was very meaningful. And I thought of speaking on this sometime as well again, and haven't for quite some time. Uh, the older brethren will remember I've spoken on it. Uh, two or three times, once even at the feast, I remember in Destin, uh, Florida, a number of years ago, as well as locally. But it is a very important topic. Turn, brethren, because it does tie in with the Passover very, very heavily, as you know. Turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 now, verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and supper being ended, the devil, having already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands and that he had come from God, here is the Christ who came from God and was going to God, yet he did this. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he began to do the job of the lowliest servant in a household, and that was the typical job of the very lowest servant on the totem pole in that time, because they had dirty roads. You know, they didn't have, obviously, flat blacktop or concrete as we do. They were going through dusty roads, and often there was manure, because they had donkeys and sheep and everything else, and so their feet would generally get dirty. And the job of the lowliest servant was to wash their dirty feet. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? So Peter often challenged Christ. He was very impetuous, but he was a leader, as I'll explain. He had that part, but he did sometimes speak up ahead of time. And Jesus answered, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said, You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And, of course, Peter was taken aback. He thought, Boy, I want to, I want to be in the kingdom, you know. He said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head has cleaned me up all over. And Jesus said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So he meant they were spiritually clean, obviously, except for Judas Iscariot, who was still there. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. We have every indication, by the way, I won't go through that I used to in the freshman class in the Harmony of the Gospels, but right after the foot washing is apparently when, you know, or at least right after the first part of the meal, well, that's when Judas left before the final Passover tokens were given. He took off to betray Christ. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down, he said, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. Now, Christ didn't have a false humility. He didn't say, well, I'm just a humble servant here, and I don't have any power, any authority. Don't listen to me. You know, you can go to either extreme on humility. If Moses, as you know, it says in Numbers 18.3, or was it Numbers 12.3, but the most humble man on the face of the earth. And yet you're finding Moses railing on these rebels when they turned against him very powerfully. And, of course, God then backed them up and caused the earth to swallow them up. So there were times when Moses didn't act very humble, according to our common definition, you know, being quiet, looking down. Yet in his heart, he was doing God's will. He had to do this as a servant leader. He had to keep the congregation together. He dared not let these rebels go up and divide Israel and turn them against God. So in total humility, total wisdom, and total confidence... Why, well, he dealt with the situation very powerfully. Anyway, Jesus, of course, said, I am your Lord and Master. If I then, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You ought to have that attitude of taking the very lowest job. If the best way that you or I, any of us, can serve in a particular situation is to take the very lowest job, do the most demeaning thing. That's what we ought to do. Think about that. Really, that's what we ought to do. 
and take that type of position for a while or do that particular job, maybe just on one occasion or whatever it is. But that's exactly the attitude Jesus Christ was trying to show us here. And we've got to really think that through. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, happy or blessed are you if you do them. So you are happy and blessed if you do this. And of course, he was telling us, he said in verse 15, uh, verse 14, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That was one indication that we all not to, ought to do that all through the year, of course, as a, as a service. But on the Passover evening, that's when he did it. And then he repeats that I've given you an example. And his example was to do it at the evening of the Passover, so we do it. And so he said again, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So we have to have the foot washing attitude all through the year. But we do have every indication from this and from the early church of God history that that's what they did do and that's what we ought to do. Just as reminder, a reminder, as the days of unleavened bread remind us of coming out of sin, just as we start prepared to take the Passover, we're reminded of the ultimate humility Christ showed and the humility we have to show all our lives, all our lives, every day that we live. And I've never done that perfectly any one day that I have lived. And I don't think you have either. There are moments of vanity, Moments of selfishness, wrong thoughts come into every one of us. And we have to fight that battle to the day we die. But we ought to work on that, try to have that attitude all through the year and every day and every hour and every minute as best we can with God's help. And only through Christ within us can we do that. And so we have to realize that. Now in chapter 13, over here in verse 34, Jesus said, after he had done that, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What was different about this? Well, that last phrase, as I have loved you, that was the new commandment. They'd been told to love one another in the Old Testament, but he told them, as I have loved you, he showed them through his entire life how to love one another and how to practice servant leadership. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now, Dr. Herman Hay, and one of the longest-serving evangelists in the church, and Mr. John Halpert, who stayed in Worldwide as well, but very kindly and powerfully interesting servant, as a lot of us knew him when he was still okay, they both have told me, and I want to talk to Rob McNair's older brother, I can't even talk to him, but to Jonathan in detail about it because he was in charge of the program in Thailand for a long time. But they told me that the Thai Buddhists, they're not Christian, the Thai Buddhists are some of the most kind, gentle, loving people that you could possibly meet on the face of the earth. So that means they're true Christians, right? No, they don't even believe in Christ. So it's not talking about that kind of love alone. It's talking about real love. And of course, as you know, and I've mentioned before a number of times, that when the Thai Buddhists, even their leaders, some of their priests, when they get in a religious war or fight, they whip out long knives and literally chop each other to bits with people screaming and blood spurting as they kill each other in person. These wonderful, loving, kind, gentle people Okay, you need to figure it out. 
Yes, there are people that can be kind and nice on the surface in certain situations. One of the most kind persons that I knew growing up was a certain aunt, and yet she was always sort of into herself in a certain way that I knew. And, uh, you know, she wasn't really into God's kind of righteousness at all. And so you can be very cultured. You can be very kind, quote-unquote, to those around you and your particular social circle. But if people are not in your particular social circle, if they're of a different educational or ethnic or educational cultural background, then you're not very friendly to them. You're not necessarily mean, but you really don't have much to do with them. Some people are very kind. They're very suave. They're very sophisticated. And we mistake that for conversion or genuine love. We must not do that. That's not the love of God at all. And they will have to be conquered someday by God. Using Mr. Armstrong's phrase, you know, some people sit in church. Some people are partly converted. We might say they have a little bit of God's spirit. Some people may have a medium portion of God's spirit. And I'm not the judge, by the way. I know that. But some people are, as Mr. Armstrong said, conquered by God. They have really, and show over a period of years, a depth of total surrender to God, no matter what. Those people are conquered by God. And you're quite sure on yourself, although God, again, is the final judge, that they're going to be in God's kingdom. Because when the chips are down, they do the right thing. So we're talking about God's kind of love not just human kindness and warmth and affection to our social circle or to our particular religion in Thailand or a fellow religionist or whatever. But you do need to love, as he said, by this we'll all know, that's an important sign, that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And you display that love in many ways, and I'm describing one way here, and that is called servant leadership. Brethren, the world came up with the title, Servant Leadership. I'm not sure the Christians did. Maybe they did. But at any rate, I took that as my, uh, my uh, theme in the classes when I was being told, they told Dr. Hay and Herman Hay and Mr. Raymond McNair and me, we're going to have to change things around. And they let us know they were going to phase us out at one point. The liberals were taking over and the apostasy was beginning. And they pressured me to take outside classes. They sort of wanted to salve their conscience by getting us ready so we wouldn't starve to death so we could take care of ourselves. And a couple of the guys pressured me, the tall one and the intellectual one, to take, uh, to take theology classes. And I said, I'm not going to take theology classes. I said, I was very blunt with them. I said, I know you guys don't believe it, but I studied at the feet of the greatest theologian on the face of the earth. Well, they didn't like that, but they knew I met Mr. Armstrong, who knew more about the real truth of the Bible than all the rest of these guys put together in these theological cemeteries. They're not seminaries, but cemeteries. <laughs> they buried the truth. But at any rate, but they said, well, you better do something. So I did decide to take this uh, class, this major in human resources development, and get a master's degree. And I was about halfway there when I had to stop at the end of 1992 and start the Global Church of God because I was being forcibly retired and in a sense fired because I would not go along with the changes. And they acknowledged that. They, they were honest enough at that at least. I heard four or five times from three or four different people. The reason we had to take you out of Big Sandy and the reason for all the rest of this, we like you, Mr. Meredith, and you have good, you did well as Deputy Chancellor in your administration, but you would not go along with the changes. 
Well, Mr. Ruddleson, who just preached, and Mr. Tom Turner, witnesses, they were there, and they were my students, right, during those last two years I was there. So they know what happened. If you want to talk to them, you get their version, but I'd like you to do that. In fact, if you have any questions, I'm sure they tell the truth, essentially what I went through, and they saw what happened at the college as, as time went on. But at any rate, uh, you know, I had to take a course in something, and I thought this human resources development tells you, as the books and textbooks showed, there were certain, quote, Christians in the field of industry, and industry used to talk about you have three resources. You have your capital resources, and you have your, uh, uh, whatever, I forget, the physical resources, your, your timber or your steel or whatever you're working on or whatever, and then you have your human resources. But they didn't pay any attention to the human resources. They would just use up the money and use up the wood or whatever they're working with and get more of that. But they didn't take very much care of the human resources. As you know, in earlier times here in America and over in Britain, they used to work people 12 or 14 hours a day. You've all heard about the Welch coal miners, little boys down to 10 or 12 years old being worked 16 hours a day, seven days a week and dying often dying in their teens and early 20s, not even having enough sun to carry on in life, working and working to death because the rich people in Britain, the aristocracy that were strutting around, they were living high on the hog, but the ones underneath were supporting them. In this country, we brought in many of the black people from Africa, took advantage of them, and they were doing a lot of the grunt work. And as a nation, we have partly repented of that, I say partly, I'm sure that's not been complete, and I understand that. That was wrong. So people in certain parts of the country lived higher on the hog than they would have otherwise. And as the book said, Margaret Mitchell's book, Gone with the Wind, that way of life has gone. Everyone has to do his own work and support himself. It's a different type of thing. So God wants us to learn to give and to help and to serve, not just those who are friendly to us, but to serve everybody. And if we're truly Christian, we will want to do that. So human resources development invented the term servant leadership. And they talk about one, a manager of a plant or a supervisor or whoever, the boss, ought to have the attitude of building his people, not just, you know, using up the lumber and getting some more, using up the steel and getting some more, using up the people and then getting more people when they get sick and die early or whatever. You don't use them up. You try to develop them. And that's one reason today we have, of course, more uh, people with health plans and we have people with decent hours. Part of that came into the union movement. The union movement went beyond sometimes. I'm not trying to stand up for the humans or the, put down the employers, but their faults on all sides. They were not converted. But some of the early goals of the union movement were right. People were not to be treated like slaves or treated like dogs wear them out, kill them in a sense, and then throw them away. Servant leadership involves you as the employer, the boss, or thinking about every phase of life, you think, how can I help this person fulfill his or her human potential? How can I help my employees feel that they are being taken a care of, that we honestly care about them? We try to pay them a fair wage. Should we pay them all a great big wage? Well, that would be nice. But if we did that, in most cases, the business, including our business, would go broke, and then they would have no wage. There's no wage from us. So you have to think of every factor as a concern. Give them enough, a fair wage, a fair pay, pay, day's pay for a fair day's work, and so on. 
but get the balance. But try to take care of their health. Try to be sure they can be in good health and work that out. Try to encourage them if you're the boss or the supervisor, not trying to threaten them all the time. You know who's in charge here? I may have to fire you. Or some of our ministers in Worldwide Church of God used to do, use that phrase. Very capable ministers. I don't want to name their names, but I know their names, and many I don't know. That was a very common phrase. Do you know who's in charge here? That seemed to be their attitude. One of the evangelists ordained a little later said he learned from this older evangelist. He said, well, I had a lot of problem on the baptizing tour with him. The other guy was in charge, but he said, I didn't learn church government. He constantly talked about it. And then even when I would turn up the radio, thinking he was just driving and not paying attention so I could hear it or get some different station, he would stop me. Do you know who's in charge here? I'm in charge of that radio. I'm in charge of this car and everything involved who's in charge here. Now, there should be a respect of the second man or assistant if the, you know certain kinds of music bothers the other man. You know, sometimes I want the air conditioning turned up more than my wife, and I have to have respect for her, even though I'm the human leader in the family. So we try to compromise. We don't compromise with sin, but if she can't stand it too cold, we try to get it partly cool and yet not too cool because she tends to be cold and I tend to be hot. Neither one of us is lukewarm, by the way, so we're okay. <laughs> anyway, we have to work those things out in our marriage to be happy. But we've had a lot of that in the past, even in the church, and some of you know that. Some of you know Mr. Martin Fannin, our pastor over in Knoxville, and he got on a terror one time and <laughs> telling me about the various ministers he had. It really kind of shook me up the time he got through. He named their names, and I knew them. He happened to get almost every bad one coming through where he was, and he gave some examples that thought, oh, no. And they didn't learn that from me. I never taught anything like that in freshman Bible class. I think Mr. and Mrs. Apartin can testify to that, and many others who were in my freshman Bible class. I see that uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lindley are here, and he was in my class years and years ago, and I didn't teach those things at all. And I did teach those things at Big Sandy, as Mr. Turner and I just didn't talk that way ever. They didn't get that from me or from Dr. Hare, from Mr. Armstrong. Somehow they got out in the field and this attitude of wanting to be important, of wanting to be a big shot or whatever came into their minds. And some of them were ex-military men too. And I won't name their names, but several of the older ministers were. And they had that attitude. I'm a, I'm a colonel and you're a nothing. You're just a grunt and we're going to tell you what to do or you better do it or else. And this attitude carried over even to the ministry. But we have to work on that, think about that, and learn from that. That's very, very important. It's not who's in charge, but who can serve the most. And really, each one of us has to think that through. Honestly think that through. Those of us in charge who are leaders in the work or the ministry, or if you have an outside job as a boss of your enterprise or supervisor, you know, as some of you do, I think Mr. Pierre has his own business and others have your own business. Try to, you know, put this into practice in your job as well as in your Christian life. So the best example of servant leadership in the entire universe was Jesus Christ. He came and showed us all about servant leadership. So if I had till midnight, well, I would tell you all about it. <laughs> but I have to tell you a little bit. But you have to think about it as you read the New Testament. How did Christ show servant leadership? He showed how we can best serve our fellow man. 
But did Jesus love everybody? You say, oh, Jesus just loved everybody. And some of the Protestant nicey-nice people say, just love the Lord and everything is fine. Then go ahead and do what you want. No. The first thing Jesus did, John the Baptist came along. He said, repent. Jesus came along. The first thing he said, repent. Powerfully. That was the very first word out of his mouth quite often. Telling them to change and wake up and go the other way. But Jesus showed how we can really serve our fellow man, how we can love them. But did he love them by letting everybody do whatever they might want to do? No. No, he didn't. He did not do that. So we need to think about that. How can we really serve our family, our children, those around us, the people who work for us, the people we're in charge of, and so on, the best for their ultimate good? Is it best for your children even as they grow up? to give them too much money and too many things? No. I made that mistake at times. Many of us have because we've been able to do things and help our children. But I've seen many do it far beyond what I did. But many people just want to spoil their children and think that's, you know, that's love. Well, that's misguided love because the children become spoiled and they become little brats and they expect everything and they're going to have an awful life later on. I have found in reading that many multi-multi-millionaire families, hundred-millionaire families, some of them may have selfish motives, but I've read where quite a number of very wise, thoughtful men said, I will not give my children more than, you know, maybe 50,000 or in the past 10,000 when 10,000 was worth 50,000 today because I had to start from nothing, and if I give this kid a million or five million dollars, he'll just go wild and he'll never learn with the value of work. He won't learn to support himself. He won't learn to accomplish. It'll ruin his life. And that's true. And so these wealthy families, some of the Rockefellers did that. I've heard of others as well. Specific names, and I haven't gone back and reviewed the books, but I'm sure it's true. They would literally give their child something, but not enough where he could just take it easy kind of a jump start to get him going. And that was it. He had to go on from there and learn to be successful. In John 21, we were now here in John 13. Let's turn to John 21, brethren. And I want to give an example here. Jesus Christ at the perfect example. And this was the perfect example, of course, of servant leadership. In John 21, notice beginning in verse 17, the very last part of the Gospel of John. Jesus here uh, said, he, he'd been talking, telling Peter. Peter was the leader, obviously. He kept talking to Peter, not the others. Feed the lambs, feed the sheep. So the third time he came, Simon, son of Jonah, verse 17, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said, the third time do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, Jesus then said, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed, not rule them and crush them, but feed, help, build, encourage, strengthen, take care of my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wanted. And when you were old, are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And the commentaries explain the expression stretch out your hands was used for being crucified they had to be nailed up like this they will stretch out your hand and you will be crucified so he was indicating as it goes on to show that peter was to be crucified just like christ follow me 
That wasn't a very fun statement to make. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God, not Christ, but Peter. And when he'd spoken, he said, follow me. Was Jesus serving Peter? Yes, he was. Peter had tremendous ability, and Peter was appointed, obviously, by Christ. Whenever it mentions lists of names of the apostles, go back, often it says, first, Peter. And then Peter was the leader. And who gave the sermon on the day of Pentecost? Peter did. Who healed the man at the gate called Beautiful? Peter did. Who dealt with Ananias and Sapphira? Peter did. And so on, all the way through. Peter was the leader, and Christ appointed him. But also, Peter tended to be impetuous, a little bit hard-headed, a little bit high-handed sometimes. And so Christ let him realize, you're going to have to go through what I had, and this would teach Peter lessons probably for all eternity. I hope I don't have to learn the lesson that way, you know, but God might let me be martyred, and God might let some of you be martyred. He did that in love. He wasn't hateful. Christ was not hateful. He died for Peter. He died for you, but he said, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was Jesus' special friend. Jesus did not play politics, brethren. You can see that. He loved John, but he did not appoint John as the chief apostle. John had more spiritual depth in certain ways, at least, and more spiritual perceptiveness in many situations. And you see that. I've explained that back here earlier at the beginning of the chapter where, you know, Peter said, I'm going a-fishing, and they fished all night and took nothing. Look, the, next, the first few verses, and then this man appears on the seashore, cast on the other side, and you'll find some. And they've been fishing all night, and they said, well, okay, we'll do that. And so they cast and were unable to draw because of the multitude of fish. Verse 7, therefore... The next verse, that disciple whom Jesus loved. John doesn't write, it's me, it's me. He always words it, words it in the third person, but it's obviously him. The disciple whom Jesus loved said, it's the Lord. And when he said that, the one who was most aggressive did what? Peter. He was most, oh, well, it's Peter. You know, the Lord, bang, I'm right there. So he jumped out of the boat and went in. And yet he did not perceive as quickly these things as, as John did. John had a depth of spiritual perception, but he did not have the natural management and leadership capacity to do that particular job. Did that make John less than Peter spiritually? No. John got to live right on, as you'll see here in this thing we're going through. And certainly the Bible would indicate John will probably have about as good. Maybe he'll even have a better. God doesn't say that. He doesn't tell us all our exact reward. <laughs> That's wise. So we don't evaluate everybody just according to things like that. But he's sure going to have a high reward and may have a higher reward throughout all eternity because he had the greatest thing of all, love. He was the apostle of love and he exemplified love. My early heroes in the Bible, as I've told you several times for decades, were David in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament because they were more exciting. You know, David was fighting the battles of the eternal and as a young evangelist in my 20s and 30s, boy, that's exciting. And Paul was charging around and doing battles of the Lord, you know, spiritually. As I become older... One of my favorites, I won't say ahead of them, but certainly equal is John. I see that's more important. And so I've got to mellow. I've got to become more like John. And David and, 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 and Paul had a lot of love too, but John exemplified that love in a special way. 
So anyway, Jesus, Peter said, what about this man? Verse 22, back in John again, Jesus said, if I will, that he remain till I come. What's that to you? Peter, don't you worry about it. I'm going to deal with each one faithfully, and you better figure it out. Then this saying went about that, his, that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say that he, John, would not die. But what if I will that he remain? If I will that he remains until I come, what's that to you? So he didn't say John would. Obviously, John did die. But nevertheless, it shows the attitudes that we're always willing to judge Christ. Well, maybe he's playing favorites. No, Christ did not pay favorites. He did actually appoint Peter ahead of John in management. He gave him a more important office. One of the greatest generals of modern times by far that we've had, General George Catlett Marshall. Most of you younger people never heard of him. George Catlett Marshall was the southerner, I think a Virginian, and he was the chief of staff through the late 30s and all through the Second World War. Tremendous ability. He had a great character, though, and so many who write about him bring that out. And he was the one who actually helped train the young Major Eisenhower and put through him through tactical training to learn strategy and so on beyond what he understood. He was not good at that. MacArthur was better at that, but, but Eisenhower didn't have that as much. And George Marshall helped train him. George Marshall helped train the greatest officer corps in American history somehow. Somehow. Obviously, God guided it. And when the Second World War broke out, they had it. The biggest and the greatest officer corps in American history was somehow ready. And so we won with the help of God Almighty. But at any rate, Marshall had to give up the desire. He always wanted the desire to, to do the Normandy invasion, the great invasion, recapturing Europe. And he, he pleaded with Roosevelt. But President Roosevelt pleaded with him. He said, George, I've got to have you. Because we're fighting here, we're fighting in Europe, we're fighting in North Africa, we're fighting out in the Pacific, and that's going to last on even longer. And, you know, General, I mean, President Roosevelt was very sick. He was a sick man, died in April, just before the war ended. He felt he had to have General Marshall by his side. And so General Marshall gave up his life's dream to, re to lead Overlord, the most powerful, magnificent invasion in human history in order to serve, to help the president. And he gave that up. But he had more ability, he had more seniority, and though he didn't get the credit, although because of his kindness and his wisdom, we still talk about the Marshall Plan, because after World War I, we, the British and American peoples, had this outflowing concern like Joseph and the ability to save up money and food and help people. We have that same ability, far beyond any others on the earth. That doesn't mean we're better, but that's what we're good at. And so after World War II, we rebuilt Western Europe with the Marshall Plan. That was the name of it. Again, you younger people perhaps don't know that. But we spent billions of dollars rebuilding our former enemies, Germany and Italy and so on, with the Marshall Plan. And this was a great man. So you have to sometimes like a, take a lesser title, a less exciting role to do a bigger job. And that's what Marshall was willing to do. So Jesus loved both Peter and, and John, but he was very objective. He put each one where they needed to be. You do not serve your wife. You do not serve your son. You do not serve anyone 
by putting them where they do not belong. Some men want to put their son in just because he is their son. Don't do that. Don't do that. Some men want to put their buddy in just because he's their buddy. And I was over the ministry in the Worldwide Church of God for over 12 years. No one ever accused me of doing that because I made many other mistakes. I was too strict and pushy and so on. But at least I didn't do that. I'd seen the mistakes being made. And, you know, I realized that I saw men under me constantly trying to bring in their buddies. They, I could see that was their, their uh, you know, beer-drinking buddy or old basketball buddy. And they would try to get the... I'd say, John or George, whatever his name was. I said, look, I know you like this guy. You knew what was going on. But he doesn't fit there. And I try to stop them from doing that. But sometimes they didn't do it or got away with it anyway or whatever. Don't, you're not serving them. Don't put a square peg in a round hole or a round peg in a square hole. It doesn't work. You say, well, it makes the person more important. He'll be happy. He'll like me. Yes, he may like you more in the short run, but you're going to hurt him. You're going to hurt the church. You're going to hurt your business, your family, whatever it is you're dealing with. In the long run, you're hurting a lot of other people, and in the end, you'll hurt him. You'll hurt him because he may be a partial failure. He might be a total failure and just hurt and hurt and ache when it all comes apart because you put him where he did not belong. And so we have to think those things through. What is the ultimate love? Have outflowing concern and love, but with it wisdom and objectiveness. And God tells us to do that. And even the texts on servant leadership uh, tell you to do that. They call that the Peter Principle, by the way. There's a whole book. I read it maybe 20 years ago or whenever, 30 years ago when it came out. It's called the Peter Principle. If you haven't read it, some of you men with business might like to do that. It's written by this Peter somebody, and he was a management expert. But it shows how often they will you'll have a good, uh, let's say, a good head man on a machine... And then you'll make him a super supervisor because you say he's a hard worker and you make him a supervisor, but he fails. He's good at the technical job of running the machine or the computer, but he doesn't know how to manage others. Or he's a good, uh, maybe he's a good supervisor with just three or four or five other men working directly for him, but you'll make him the plant manager and then he fails. You're hurting him, you're hurting the whole plant. And in the end, you're hurting him. It's a horrible embarrassment as he has to be let go or sees the whole thing come apart because he wasn't ready for that. Sometimes some of our ministers have unwisely had a deacon, and he was such a wonderful deacon, and they decided to make him an elder. Well, a deacon has one set of qualities, and an elder has a different set of qualities. And a deacon, they're not altogether contradictory, but there's an enlargement, you see. A deacon is to be one who is wise and who is converted and will be able to have a servant leadership attitude to help set up chairs, park cars, help people. And that's the main thing we're all here for when they understand it. But if you suddenly put him in charge over an area of the church or associate pastor or a minister, or he has to preach and technically explain the Bible or deal with bad guys in the church and understand attitudes and perhaps stop their mouths before they... He may overdo it by stopping their mouths too harshly in the wrong way because he doesn't know it, doesn't understand people, or he may not do anything because he just flabbergasted. Either way, he might be a failure. You put him ahead of where he belongs, and you make him fail. The Peter principle. 
that's well known in management. It's wrong. It's not good servant leadership. So as I say, servant leadership is not giving everybody what they want. Servant leadership is trying to honestly help the people now and forever. Do you serve your child, your little boy, more by letting him raise Cain and yell and scream and get away with it, or do you serve him more by chasing him forcefully and helping him to wake up and repent and teach him a way of life that he is under authority and he is to be good? In the end, you'll serve him a lot more. He may not seem to love you as much, but you've got to do the chasing in a way that he understands. In certain countries, you can't do the actual whipping, but you have to deal, take away things and deal with them in other ways forcefully to wake, make him wake up so this little boy can wake up before it's too late. And we read about broken families, black and white homes, where the boys go wild. Why? Because they don't have a father. And they're not fathers in the house. And there's no strong person to say, this is it. You stop this or you're going to get it. So it's just some woman that doesn't have the physical strength. And perhaps women are more compassionate and don't have the will either. Not trying to put women down. But you all understand that women are helped by having their husbands there. And with a young, rebellious teenage boy who will tower over his mother, it's better to have a man there to deal with that kid before it's too late. And so the kid goes out. Then he rapes other women, kills people. All kinds of stuff, because he did not have a father to tell him, wake up, stop that or else. And he finds out there is an else coming if he, if he doesn't stop it. You, saw, you see, yet are you hurting him? My parents used to whip me physically. I remember Harry Truman got all upset, President Truman, when they were trying to introduce this political correctness back in his age. And he talked about being spanked or whipped by his parents and said it was very good for him. And he gave some good examples of that. Well, it was good for me, too. And I had a, quite a number of whippings. And it was good for me. And as I look back on it, I needed it. And once in a while, I got a bad whipping for something I didn't do quite as much or whatever. Then my mother reminded me, well, Rod, there were other times your dad didn't whip you when he should have. Say, well, that's right. And I realized she was right. And in the end, it was good for me. And I might not be here if he hadn't whipped me and whipped me real good. I remember back in grade school, we had an old lady... Miss Corlett, I think her name was, in West Central Grade School. And she was a nice lady. Nothing wrong with her. It was my fault. But she was old, and she was fat, and she was real slow, and she was getting ready to die. And after a year or two after this happened, she did die. And she couldn't take care of us boys that were going on, you know, 10 or 11 years old, running around and pulling the girls' pigtails and spilling ink and doing bad things. She would kind of go, oh, that's not good. And she couldn't even talk very loud. So I caused trouble. And then she had a woman teacher try to whip me. Well, I just kind of laughed and ran away. And then she got another woman, and she couldn't do it. They finally had to get the, ma the male custodian. They didn't have a man teacher in grade school. And he helped hold me, so the two women tried to whip me. And I kind of laughed because they couldn't hit me hard enough anyway. A little bit later, I've told you this, but I enjoy telling this. We had a, a, young, <laughs> we had a young man come in as the new principal when Miss Corlett died. And he was built and looked in a little sense something like Mr. Ted Armstrong. He wasn't big. He was about 5'8", dark-headed, very nice-looking. But he was athletic and strong. And we were kids. To us, he was 10 feet tall. And we were all out in the, coming in from recess one time and pulling the girls' pigtails and pulling their hair and doing bad things and all this noise. And, ha, 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 and the women teacher go, oh, stop that, stop that. Well, no one's going to stop. Why should we stop with these old women fussing at us? That was just ridiculous. We weren't paying attention to them. 
we weren't doing horrible things in those days, by the way. No one got killed. <laughs> but but we, were, we were little, little boys. And all of a sudden, about six feet or ten feet behind me in this big line, I heard, <gasps> and this boy was flying through the air, and he, <laughs> he, he ended over Mr. Andal. His name was uh, Mr. Andal's uh, knee, and he had this big paddle, looked like it was ten feet long. It was, you know, big. He, wham! Ah! Wham! Boy, he whipped him good six or nine times. He yelled. And all the little boys suddenly stopped like that. And for weeks, we were real good. Real good. And we never got as bad again in that school because Mr. Antle was patrolling this, the hallways, you see. We knew Mr. Antle's there. It was good for us. It was good for the community. It was good, and our parents appreciated it, too. I never heard them complain about Mr. Antle. He was a good man. He didn't do it in a bad way. He just had to deal with these feisty little boys, which is what we were. So love can be expressed in different ways. And I think he had good wisdom in it overall. In Matthew 16, outflowing love must be wise and objective. Turn back to Matthew 16, brethren, and here you'll find an example. that's very important. And let's begin in Matthew 16, verse 15. They said, some said he was Elijah, one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, and he's always the one that speaks up and takes the lead. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I say to you, so he's speaking to Peter now to be made the human uh, little pebble under Christ, the human leader. You are Petros, meaning a small stone or pebble. You're rock-like. And on this Petra, we get the name Petra, which may be the place of safety, meaning a whole rock mountain or giant cliff or foundation or whatever. On this massive rock, uh, I will build my church, not Peter's church not Peter's church, I will build my church and the gates of Hades of the grave will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That shows the terrible catastrophe and tragedy of all of us being split up in the church of God today because we can put someone out today in God's government. They'll run right down the street and go to some other church of God and God's going to end that someday, certainly when Christ comes. Then he commanded that they should tell no one he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he was to go to Jerusalem, be, uh, suffer many things, and be killed and be raised again the third day. He showed what he was about to go through. And so here comes the petulant Peter, trying to show off his great loyalty. Peter said, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, I'm not going to let him do that. And another said, he'll said, I'll do this. And of course, Peter's the one that grabbed his sword and chopped this soldier's ear off, which John brings out in John's gospel near the end. And, and Jesus put it back on again. He said, they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Stop that. He didn't want that. But Peter then was very carnal. So what is this? It tells us two things. The big thing to remember is right after he said, you're this rock, and upon this rock, this big rock, I'll build my church. The Catholics try to say that Peter was the, the perfect pope from then on. No, the very next breath, Christ is correcting him, you see. He was not the pope at all. He made a horrible mistake right away. 
And so he began to rebuke Christ. He says, I won't let this happen. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. That was his result, his comment right after the Catholics tried to think Peter was made the perfect pope. Get behind me, Satan, or adversary. You are an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. And Peter still was carnal. Of course, the Holy Spirit was not give, given. So the Holy Spirit was with him at times, we know, but not yet in him, as John explains at the near the end of his gospel. So we have to understand that and learn lessons from that uh, type of thing. So Jesus was not thinking Peter was perfect at all, and Peter was not. Uh, I want to give an example of another attitude of one who was very fine, but didn't belong somewhere else in a bigger job. I've used this example before, so I'll try not to spend time on it. But then, man, as you probably know, it was Bill Hamburger. He was an early deacon in the church. He moved out from, he sold his peanut farm in Texas, came to Ambassador College early on, was there when I got there, so he must have come in 48, I think, and was very, very kind, very loving, very steady, very dedicated, constantly just giving, helping, and serving, doing deacon jobs all the time, and worked for nothing for years until Mr. Armstrong finally realized, well, Bill's run out of money, someone told him, and having a hard time. The boy said, we, we forgot to give Bill a, a, a salary. At first he said he didn't need one, and uh, but finally he did. And then Mr. Armstrong gave him a salary, and he used to live in the garage apartment right behind Mr. Armstrong's house. But he was a wonderful man and helped us younger men in many, many ways. But at any rate, uh, he was a deacon, but he should not have been and was never made the head deacon. Why? Well, because he was a good man, very serving, but he only had a sixth grade education. He had poor grammar. He was kind of unsure of himself and how to deal with situations and with other men. But he wanted to serve. So he functioned well as one of the deacons under a head deacon or under a local elder, but he should never have been made a local elder because he did have very imperfect grammar and his, some of his teeth were missing and, and, you know, physical problems because he didn't get eat right. He didn't know the truth and was an old bachelor who had to take care of himself for years. Will he have a high position in God's kingdom because he didn't have some great big title? Probably he will. As I've said before, several evangelists were together. I can't forget which ones. I can't remember if Mr. Apartheid was there. He might have been. You were there. And with several of just chatting one time, I can't remember exactly where it was, but I remember it happening. I was moved by it. There were four, I think four or five of us were there. Several were evangelists. And we said, well, you know, we all have a lot of human mistakes. And Bill, we met Bill Hamburger, may have a higher position in God's kingdom than any of us. And we meant it. We weren't trying to show off. We were just alone talking. And he may have a lot higher position than some who were evangelists and fell away. I'm sure he will. He was faithful to the end, giving, helping, serving, but no big title. He didn't try to get any big title. He didn't try to get any big salary. He didn't try to show off. He just wanted to serve. He just had love. And that's the main thing there is, and that's what he had, and he had a lot of it. So remember, brethren, any title that you get in this life is nothing, nothing compared to eternal life. You've just got to really understand that, because there is a sense of competition, often, as Mr. Winnell pointed out at some of our local church, because the church is, because some men are taught, particularly men have this problem, 
women have some of it too and want to take over and be the head deaconess and push people around or whatever. And some men have the title of head deacon or else they want to push themselves into being an elder, the head deacon or whatever, or even be a deacon in the first place just because they want a title. And that's not right. That attitude itself is wrong. And uh, you should not think that way. You want to be there because you want to serve. And uh, But uh, Dr. Winnell pointed that out. But this whole attitude then carries over to where then you see, if they see, well, we have Mr. Meredith has a church, and then this church over here in that church, and someone leaves and starts a church, maybe I could start a church. Maybe I could just start a church. So then they go and start a church, and isn't that wonderful? No, frankly, it isn't. And you say, well, who gives you the right to say everybody could go start his own church? Yes, they can. Yes, they can. It's a free country. But should they? Should they? Was there some special reason why I ought to have done it? I say before God in Christ, I think there was looking back on it. I did not want to. I did not plan it. My wife wanted me to leave a full year earlier and said they're changing everything. But I said, well, honey, they still haven't changed a lot of things and I'm not sure. And I want to stay in there. And I did a full year until I was going to be forcibly retired, forcibly retired with no question. I went to Mike and Joe and talked about it. And then I asked Joe Jr., I said, well, can I give an occasional sermonette and anoint the sick like my friend Mr. Hegbold and do a little bit of service? He kind of smirked behind his beard. That's out of the question. Those are the exact words. I never forgot it. I'd been praying for months. Father, show me what to do. That's out of the question. Okay, guys. They'd both been my students, so I was not overly impressed with them, smart alecks. And they wanted to put me in a rocking chair and have me do nothing. And I'd been doing two things for months. I'd been praying and studying and asking God, and I had been rereading Mr. Herbert Armstrong's autobiography for the third or fourth time, and I saw he did it twice. He left the Sardis Church in Oregon, then he joined Duggar back in West Virginia, and when Duggar stopped him from preaching certain truths, he left him too. And what I was leaving for was about 10 or 15 times as much as what Mr. Armstrong left for, and I'm not exaggerating. If he were alive, I'm sure he'd agree with that. They were changing everything. And I knew that by this point because I talked to one of the evangelists who had just come out of this private meeting who had always told me the truth about it, what they were doing. And he admitted they were going to change everything. And I knew that. So I thought, I can't live with myself. If I do, I've been the only evangelist and I talked to others, I won't mention their names, but two or three other evangelists, three others at least, and tried to get them to do something and they wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't do anything. I thought, I've got to do it. I cannot live with myself if I let these creeps take over the church of God and completely destroy everything we built. I say we because I helped build a little bit of it. The main ones who helped build it, beside Mr. Armstrong in the early 50s and late 50s and even early 60s, were Herman Hay and me at first, later joined by Ted Armstrong once he was converted and began to get on the radio in 55 and 57 mainly 57, 8. But I helped build it too. It was my whole life. So I felt I had to do it. I wasn't trying to just, you know, do something that others weren't willing to do anything and they start something else two or three years later then others start others and others start others for other reasons. When it became safe to do so, we did it when it was not safe to do so. When the men first came with me, a lot of them will remember, I didn't promise some big salary, some great glory, 
I promised them blood, tears, toil, and sweat, like your deal. <laughs> and I didn't know if I'd have any salary. I told Cheryl, we may have to live in a mobile home. And I knew that, meant that. We're just got to carry on the work, no matter what. But at any rate, there is a difference. If you have a church of God that is right, not perfect, but okay, God is using it, the work is being done, the truth is being preached, the government of God is being taught and practiced, however imperfectly, why would you leave? Because of vanity, that's why. Because you want to be important. And that's the number one reason why many of these guys are gone. I haven't read all their hearts, but I know that's the main reason for most of them. I could go into details, but I should not do that. And I'm not their judge. But Dr. Linnell certainly indicates that. He knows that too. Mr. Carl McNair trains of them. He knows that. And they went out to do their own thing. They could have come with us. And we said, please come. No, they wouldn't at the beginning. And then, of course, others later on left more recently. Why? One man was with us, as Mr. Ames said, left us and said, well, they're preaching a wrong gospel and, and uh, uh, various things. And Mr. Ames said, he sat with us for eight solid years in the Council of Elders, never complained about these things. And now all of a sudden he has to use these little things you know, not little things if they'd been true, but we did not change the gospel. He's got to use these ideas as an excuse to start his own work. Why? So he can be important. And there's no other reason, frankly, when you understand it. And you better understand it or you'll follow one of these guys. Do not do that. If there is a good church, a decent church, doing God's work and preaching the full truth of God and preaching and practicing God's government, those three things, if you leave, you're in trouble. I don't care if I die tomorrow and the work carried on by somebody else. You are still in trouble because the Christ of the Bible is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he does not change. But that gets into the attitude totally contrary to servant leadership, as you should know. Servant leadership. How did Jesus exert servant leadership? Turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Was Jesus always kind and soft-spoken? And his servant leadership, Matthew 23, he said in verse uh, 11, He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. So he tried to tell us to have that serving attitude wherever we are. They don't need a big title. And whoever exalts himself will be abased if you exalt yourself just for the sake of being a big shot. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you! Uh-oh, this doesn't seem like servant leadership. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the great religious leaders of his day, the Billy Grahams and, and uh, the other big shots of his day were looked up to, as the other leaders are around here, you know. Woe to you, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Of course, they were much more strict and self-righteous than Billy Graham. So I should bring him into it, I guess, in that way. But they were very self-righteous and hard-headed, and they were the religious leaders. And he was not playing games with them. He said, you have taught people the wrong way of God, and by that you keep them out of the kingdom. They think they're getting the truth, and they're not. And so he, he was, you know, again, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, trying to get someone to follow you. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So Jesus practiced servant leadership 
But servant leadership sometimes involves waking people up for their own good before it's too late. That is servant leadership if you do it in wisdom and with an attitude of love as Jesus did, more perfectly than any of us do. Turn back to chapter 20, Matthew 20, verse 20. And notice here, uh, no, I'd better, well, you see the sons of Zebedee, the mother of Zebedee came asking that one of her sons sat on Jesus' right and on the left in the kingdom. Was that servant leadership? No, she just wanted her boys to be important. <laughs> you know, normal mother's desire, of course, but she just wanted her boys to be important. And when the ten heard about it, verse 24, they were, they were upset. Well, they should have just smiled and said, these guys are carnal, but they were upset. Why? Because they had the same attitude. That's why they were upset, and they thought, we want to be there. How dare they try to push in ahead of us, you see? So Jesus saw that. And he said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant, one who's honestly trying to give and help and serve. And whoever desires to be first among him, let your, him be your slave. Let him lay down his life to help, to teach, to build, to serve the best he can with the strength that God gives him. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Christ did not come to be served, but he allowed people to serve him. You know, you'll see that many times at these dinners and places like that, because he could best serve. He said, Martha, Martha, you're serving too much. And Mary has chosen the best part because she wanted to hear the truth. <laughs> but there are times to let others help you if that enables you to help others more. But if no one else is there and you sense you should do it, then you should do the foot washing. You should scrub the floors. You should carry out the trash. You should do the lowest job there is. My wife often points me to <coughs> carry out the trash. <laughs> That's not the lowest job, by the way. But at any rate, we should do whatever it is. And that's, and that's the attitude we've all got to have. You see, we would not have nearly as many splits in the church of God today if everyone had that kind of attitude. They just wanted to serve and to help God's people and keep them together and do the work. Back in Luke 12 is a very important principle, brethren, very important. Luke chapter 12, and here, beginning in verse 42, Jesus is talking. He said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing teaching the truth, doing the work. Truly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink with the drunk, as indeed began to happen and worldwide, as some of you know, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at a hour he's not aware and cut him in two and appoint his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. And that's not fun stuff. You, you think, well, that's just something we read over, but he talked about the kind of beating they administered to people back there and he let them know there's going to be a real suffering involved. But the point is coming next. But he who did not know, and God knows most people are not called today, they don't know, he who did not know yet committed things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few. 
a person who is weak in the church or new in the church or not even converted at all, the principle is there, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much shall be required. If you have a great deal of ability and a great deal of training, more will be required of you. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So that's the principle. If you have more opportunity, God requires more of you. If you have less opportunity, God requires less, uh, less of you. And that's the way God judges. He judges fairly. The lowliest now may be the greatest in tomorrow's world. And we have to understand that. Back in Ambassador, I've given you this example, but I think it's helpful. I used to think it was terribly important the guys that used to be student body president. But after a couple, most of them seemed to go astray. And I won't need to name them. Just one after the other after the other. Student body president. But they fell away from the college, fell away from the truth, fell away. And many of them became heretics. But they looked as the important ones at that time. And then evangelists. You look at the picture of the vice presidents in this most beautiful uh, college annual we used to put out. And the picture there. And without naming names, where are they? Again, most of them fell away. So don't despair if you're not an evangelist. And you women will not be an evangelist or vice president. But where are those guys? They're in worse trouble than any of us. So he that humbles himself will be exalted. And he that exalts himself will be humbled. And he that takes advantage of his office and does not do the right thing is in terrible trouble. And we have to really understand that. Turn to Luke chapter 20 now. We're going to stay in Luke a minute here. Chapter 20 and verse 20. Verse 30. I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 35. Blessed are those who are counted worthy to attain that age, tomorrow's world, and the resurrection from the dead. Neither marry are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels that are sons of God, can be translated children, being sons of the resurrection. And brethren, as I've explained a few weeks ago, Women are going to have very important positions in God's kingdom. And some women may have more important positions than their husbands. Many women may. And it's important that we all understand that, that we men understand that, because some of you men, like Bill Hamburger, you didn't get to go to Ambassador College when you were age 19 like I did, having a year of college first. You didn't get that thousands of hours with Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Apartheid and I and others have had that privilege. You didn't have that. More is required of us. And I know that. And I'm going to have a hard time living up to that. But God, He may not give you the title, but if you do the best you can, you man, with what you have to do with, you can have a very important job, maybe more important than I have if I foul up. And I know that. And you ladies, some of you may be ahead of some of us men because God is going to give you great opportunities and titles later in glory based on what you do with what you have to do with. Many men assume women are less important because they, in this life, usually don't assume the big jobs, even not just in a Christian world, but even in, you go to the Orient or wherever, generally men are the leaders. You know that they're physically stronger, they have more drive and certain types of capacity to clear the forests and build the cities and do this and do that, and uh, they take the lead in, in general. And the women are helps help supplement them and help in rearing the children and being a keeper at home. But women often have a lot more perceptiveness and compassion 
and even sometimes wisdom in dealing with others, and they have more love. Get it, fellas? The most important quality in the universe is love. The three great qualities, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, the last couple of verses. Women tend to have more of that. And God looks on that. And so they're able then to express and to help and to work with others in certain ways and serve and will have that chance. Often women have more outflowing love, more humility, more obedience, and more service. And that is what God looks at. They're constantly serving their husbands, serving their families, and they're not trying to get some big job and show off. Often men are looking at their titles and competing with other men who has the big job and showing off. Women can be easily more kind, more perceptive of people and even their children. They're given that by God and certainly serving even their husbands and others in the society. My mother and grandmother imparted to me things my father never did, no man ever did. And I'm very grateful for that. My mother was patient with me and kind and helpful and talked with me, helped reason me, reason through what I might do and what I was might be good for and tried to encourage me. My father wasn't a bad father. He was a good father. He was a college graduate, but he was more athletic and he taught me to be tough and don't sip up her lip and don't cry. Strong men don't cry and stuff like that. But being work, a working man and, and tired, just dead tired at night, he didn't talk to me near as much. I talked to my mother ten times as much as I did my father. And she helped me immeasurably. And my grandmother was a wonderful woman. And when I got upset at my mother, which I did as a rebellious teenager sometimes, and I'd, she'd say, do this, do that. And so I I leave the house. I'm getting out of here and slam the door and I go over to grandma's house and she'd give me tea and sympathy, you know. And uh, shortly I would hear the phone ring and grandma would say, yes, he's here. And uh, so, you know, my mother knew I was okay even though I was just 8 or 12 or 15 years old. But grandmother would talk to me about the Bible and sometimes she'd read me the Bible and she got me thinking about the Bible more than both my parents put together. She prayed and prayed. My uncle told me down in the basement, they both, my dad and uncle would hear my grandmother just really groaning in prayer early in the morning if they happened to get up early accidentally. She'd be down there just praying her heart out, asking God to give help one of her sons be a minister and me, her only grandson, being a minister. So her younger son, Paul, C. Paul Meredith, turned out to be a minister and I turned out to be a minister, partly through my grandmother. And, of course, you read the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, your mother and your grandmother taught you things. And women have had a tremendous impact in that way. And God will reward you women for taking the place God has set for you. You don't have to go out and compete with men. You may have a higher position in God's kingdom than most of the men around you. Abraham Lincoln said, as you know, I'm paraphrasing, all that I am or ever hope to be, I am owed to my loving mother. So that's a tremendous thing. And we have to understand that and understand the lessons that God wants us to learn from those things. Turn to First uh, Thessalonians, if you would. First Thessalonians, uh, brethren, and uh, chapter 2 here. First Thessalonians 2, and Paul writes about his ministry. He said, verse 7, We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. 
For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God, your witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know how we exhorted, yes, he did talk to them and teach them, and comforted, very gentle and helpful, and charged every one of you as a father does his children, not as a dictator, but as a father, that you would have a walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul was like a nursing mother among them, helping, giving, serving in every way he could. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 now. 1 Corinthians 9, and beginning in verse 19. Here's the Apostle Paul again. He says, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I made myself a bond slave, that is, doulos, bond slave of all, that I might win the more. Under the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those under the law as those under the law, that I might win them. To those without law, to the pagans who didn't even know about God's law, as without law. He didn't sin, but he just talked their language. Like Mr. Armstrong used to talk the language of businessmen. Say, well, I used to sit on your side of the desk, Harry, and I had an office here in the loop here in Chicago, just like you, and he would talk their talk. As without law, but under the law toward Christ. Toward Christ, he was under the law, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. He humbled himself. He did the lowliest job. He helped them. He, he sort of altered his stance each time he needed to to help these people. Some said, well, I disagree with you. What did Paul do? You don't know who I am. I'm the great apostle to the Gentiles. You better wake up or get up. What? No, he didn't do that. He said, well, George, you don't understand. Let me explain something to you. So he took a lot of abuse probably. He wasn't always concerned about who's in charge here. He tried to give, to help, to serve, to lay down his life for the brethren. And all of us ought to have that. I always remember Mr. Lambert Greer's brother, who was with us for a number of years and fine man. He was telling me how he was trained in the field under Mr. Carl McNair at the beginning of his ministry where he was full-time for a while and then later out in his own business. And he said they'd go here and there, and he gave me two or three examples like this where Mr. Carl Munner was just helping and serving wherever he went and not worrying about the acting important. One time they came to this uh, woman, and this woman had her children or some others helping her, a big long line of peas, and they were splitting peas. And uh, or is that it? Or they were, uh, I think, is splitting peas or shucking. I think it was shucking peas. And there they were shucking peas. Well, I know some of our ministers, frankly, might have gone in and said, Mrs. Jones, that's not important. You come over and sit down. I'm going to tell you the truth. Well, Carl McNair, of course, grew up on the farm. So he just walked up quietly to the table, sat next to her, and he began shucking peas. <laughs> so he shucked peas, and she shucked peas. He knew how it was in harvest time. There's so much to do. But he was able to have a nice visit with her while they were shucking peas. And, of course... You know, Dean Greer said, he kind of noticed how looking around, boy, you know, just they sort of sensed here was a man who was there to give, to help, to serve. He was not acting important. He was just trying to help the woman by talking to her, but also shucking peas at the same time. Servant leadership. So we want to learn that and try to be like that every way we can. Turn back, if you would now, brethren, to Philippians. If you would, Philippians chapter 2 here. 
And here, of course, is the greatest example of servant leadership. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of, comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, uh, being, on, being of one accord, of one mind. Brethren, Paul wanted them to stay together. One way they could honor God was by staying together, by forgiving one another humbling themselves before one another, practicing servant leadership, not by rushing off to say who's important or I've got to have a big job and some little tiny group to split the church so I can be important. They didn't do that. He didn't want that. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one look not out for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. That's the attitude of servant leadership. How do you help the other guy? How do you serve him in whatever place, whatever job you are, whatever situation you are? Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being very God in the family of God, can say, look who I am. But he came to serve. He made himself of no reputation. Verse 7 which, as I've explained, the Greek is emptied himself. He emptied himself of the awesome glory he'd had and power, taking the form of a servant, a bond slave, doulos, and coming in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even one of the most slow, agonizing, humiliating deaths ever invented by depraved humanity. Christ knew in advance what was ahead of him. He was willing to do it to serve, to give, to help, to set you and to set me an example. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The example, the perfect example, the ultimate example of servant leadership was given by Jesus Christ. We've got to learn to try to be like that. I try to tell our ministers, Dr. O'Neill is working with them, we want to be like that. We want you to be like that. We want all the department heads and everybody in the work to be like that. Every Christian ought to be like that. We're all going to have a title pretty soon. We're going to be kings and priests. But we need to be servant leaders first. Servant leaders, giving, helping, serving, having our mind on that. Not on ourselves, not on our title, not on how important we are, but on the aspect of serving and servant leadership. And then, and only then, we'll be there and we'll have the greatest opportunity to serve of all throughout all eternity.